Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia, and this is episode 23 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thanks for listening. Today's topic is the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation's National Research Blueprint, and we have got a stacked lineup to discuss the blueprint, what it is, how it came to be, and how you can get involved. We kick off the discussion right after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Life with hemophilia shouldn't be defined by limits, and the right education along the way can be helpful. Discover what Sanofi's dedication can mean for you at redefininghemophilia.com. Sammy Valadez, a bleeding disorders patient and caregiver, also known as a lived experience expert, or Lee, starts us off by sharing how she first got involved in research. Hi, I'm Sammy Valadez. I live in Illinois. I am a mother of two daughters and a wife. My oldest daughter has von Willebrand's and Factor Seven, and my youngest daughter and I both have von Willebrand's disease. And I am a Lee co-chair, and I'm also on the NRB steering committee. It started off for me very overwhelming in the very beginning, as I had no knowledge of the research process. And even to this day, I'm still learning new things all the time. We went from just being a group of patients to a group of advocates, really, and to being leaders. And during that time, the name change came from subject matter experts to lived experience experts on both sides of the table. The researcher and the patient are both subject matter experts in their own way. So we wanted to define ourselves and empower ourselves to be different than the researchers, but looked at equally. Lived experience experts, Lees, are individuals, their caregivers and family members directly impacted by inheritable bleeding disorders. They're diverse and personable and based on the important perspective leaves should, to the best of their abilities, influence and or drive bleeding disorder research. Usually you just participate in a clinical trial or you fill out a survey or something like that, but you never know the ending and or the positives and or the negatives that came from that research and the ability to put your two cents in on that process with the researcher from the beginning and make that research more about the patient than about not just the patient, but the community more than just a single study or by saying that this is more of a priority than that is to get to the same outcome, but just changing the research just a tiny bit to be more patient-centered is going to impact all of us. And I think it's going to get even bigger than the bleeding disorder community. We just get to be the first. Lees will play an important role in shaping the future of bleeding disorders research, as will medical and scientific experts. Let's meet the rest of our contributors. 
My name is Michael Racht. I'm a pediatric hematologist by training. I have been with the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation for the past six months in the role of Chief Medical and Scientific Officer. I came to the NBDF to work with Len and Maria and Carrie and the team to help really fully vision the National Research Blueprint. And in addition to my role at NBDF, I do still see children and adolescents and young adults with inheritable bleeding disorders through the federally supported treatment center at Yale University School of Medicine and Yale Children's Hospital. My name is Maria Santaella. I'm the Vice President of Research Strategy at the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation. I've been working in the organization for six years, so I've been involved in the National Research Blueprint project since its inception. Before that, I was a nurse coordinator at an HTC, a federally funded HTC at the University of Miami. Hello, I'm Carrie Norris. I am Vice President of Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation. And I have been in this role for a little bit over two years. Very excited to be here, but I've worked in the health equity space for a little over 23 years and plan to do some incredible work with this team. So thank you for having me. Thanks for having me on. I'm Len Valentino. I'm currently the President and Chief Executive Officer at the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation. I am a pediatric hematologist oncologist and practiced for more than 40 years, taking care of children, adolescents, and adults with all types of uh, hematological problems. Thank you all. Dr. Valentino, let's start with you. What was your initial vision for the National Research Blueprint, and what inspired you to make research and the blueprint both a novel focus and a signature project for the NBDF over the last few years? When I think about what makes research really move forward, it's advancing care, and to advance care requires innovation, and that innovation comes through solid planned research. So I thought that this was an opportunity to move an organization that was steeped in advocacy and education into the realm of research where we could really make a difference for people living with inherited bleeding disorders. From the outset, your vision has not only been about research guiding progress in care for bleeding disorders, but also about research being guided by those impacted by these disorders. Can you speak to that part of your vision? It's interesting how we all hopefully evolve in our thinking over the course of time. And as we hopefully mature in our thinking process. And that really happened to me over decades of thinking about research and how research should be conducted. And I really believe that research has to be impactful to those that it's intended to help. And in the end, that's the patient. It should not be something that advances my academic career, although obviously that's important, It really should be designed and performed to help the patient. So when I thought about this program and designing it, it really needed to be focused and centered in the patient experience and how patients could guide us in what was important to them. And then research could really take over as an engine to drive towards innovation to help patients. Yes, patient-focused innovation is critical. We continue our conversation right after this short break. 
Every voice counts and every story matters. Hearing from others about their lives and sharing your story in return can help the community explore new possibilities for life with hemophilia. With that spirit in mind, Sanofi created Heme Sessions. Now streaming on Spotify, Heme Sessions is an album of seven original songs inspired by the real experiences of people living with hemophilia. The stories are as diverse as the hemophilia community and brought to life with genres spanning pop to country. Together, they form an album that uses the power of music to celebrate and connect our community like never before. Search Heme Sessions on Spotify today, H-E-M Sessions, and find inspiration in the stories about the triumphs that are possible when living with hemophilia. Let's pick back up with our panel. As partners in this Blue Sky initiative, you all played key roles in the initial realization of the vision. What were your roles and what steps did you take to initially engage the inherited bleeding disorders community in such a way that would help inform the vision? When I came to the National Hemophilia Foundation, now the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, one of the questions that I wanted to address was, what does this community really want? What is important to the community? And I phrased that question to more than 200 people in the community, many living with inherited bleeding disorders. If time, effort, and money were not constrained, what would you like to see? And one of the things that universally came forward was, we'd like to see more innovation, more research that focuses on things that are important to me. And by me, that was the patient speaking, people living with these disorders. The Blue Sky Vision really articulated for me very clearly what needed to be done, that we needed to put special emphasis and an entire program around research and innovation. That's great. Maria, would you like to tell us a little bit about the community listening sessions? So the community sessions, we got together about 14 different groups. The groups were mainly constituted by the key stakeholders in the community, right? So those were clearly the lived experience experts or our patients. It meant we brought in researchers, but also members representing the interdisciplinary HTC team, the hemophilia treatment centers. Industry was part of those groups and also sponsors and government agencies. And the idea was to now trying to more concretely establish that vision that the Blue Sky Vision project was taking us in and really understand, okay, so if research is, it sounds like research is important to improve the quality of life, improve fill in the gaps that are needed in the community. And so now have a little bit more focused conversations. And the themes that arose from that was that there were certain common themes between all the bleeding disorders, and those were mainly on research and on pain and on mental health and health disparities. But also there were also some disorder-specific ones, and mainly illustrating the big gaps that exist in our most of rares of bleeding disorders in our community. So when you compare the hemophilias having a lot of treatments options and some of them, some of the other ones having more limited options, for example. And then also it looked at the infrastructure and the capacity and really looking at the way research was being conducted 
but making it important themes that arose from that were patient centricity, the importance of the patient being at the center of really that research process, making it more collaborative and really leveraging the existing organizations, the existing bodies in our community that were already conducting research in our space. Thank you for that description. And Dr. Recht, can you tell us more about the chapter survey and how this effort engaged leaders across patient advocacy? Michelle Whitcop, who was the former vice president of research at the time, NHF, and I gathered together a group of chapter leaders, executive directors of the member organizations, member advocacy organizations throughout the country to try to get a better understanding of, first, the chapter leaders as a group are so skilled at putting on programs, on advocating, on educating their constituency, that research was a lower priority for very many of these executive directors and leaders from the chapters. So just helping them understand what exactly we meant when we talked about research and how they at the chapter level could help move a research agenda forward. That was, I think, our biggest accomplishment by working with the chapter leaders. After we had the conversations, we put together a survey that went out to all chapter leaders. And really, it was essentially a takeoff on some of the blue sky initiative and community listening sessions to get a better understanding of where the community stood and understood. This was all happening in 2020, 2021, right after Mr. Floyd was unfortunately murdered by the Minneapolis police. So having Carrie Norris as part of our group to help us frame what we were talking about in the equity and diversity and inclusion space can't be understated, right? We would not have been able to get the kind of information that we got from both our discussions and the surveys without the incredibly important input from Carrie. Great. So then how did this initial input begin to identify the critical gaps in our knowledge and ability to deliver an optimal standard of care to the bleeding disorders community? And how did the needs of this community begin to shape the nascent areas for prioritized research development? And what even were they? And lastly, how were these areas further developed through the working groups assembled from all facets of the bleeding disorders community? So... What we heard from all this input was that we wanted to be as inclusionary as possible. So we had specific working groups for looking at the research priorities for people with hemophilia. We had a working group for people with von Willebrands and other mucocutaneous bleeding disorders. So that's bleeding disorders of your nose and your mouth and your GI tract and your uterine tract. We had a special working group for people with rare or rarer bleeding disorders. So we had a specific working group for women, girls, and those with the potential to menstruate. The other issues we heard were we need to build the appropriate infrastructure. We need to 
build and sustain the appropriate workforce. We need to figure out how to fund all this exciting research. So we had a working group on infrastructure and workforce and funding. And then finally, we did have a specific working group that covered diversity and equity and inclusion. I think my earliest learnings from the process that began with that community input was really the need to align our focus as a community in silos, and we needed to make sure that we were all aligned in the same manner, that there was a need to really define our priorities. And so we needed a mechanism by which we could bring the community together, define those priorities, those research questions that were important to the patients. I learned very early on that our LEEs and our patients wanted to be part of that process, of that research process, that for me, up until this point, I always felt that they were, they felt alienated by the process, by the research, because it's such a complex complex foreign concept, but they wanted to engage. They were interested in, in learning more. They were interested in finding ways how to participate. And I also learned that there was a role in MBDF and trying to coordinate this effort. We heard from the community that there was a need. We heard from the community that there was research. The research would absolutely improve their quality of life. They would fill a lot of the gaps. We weren't sure what NPDF's role was in this process. And I think that as we move with this process along, we realized that the rule was really leveraging those partnerships, leveraging all the organizations that we had in the system, really thinking thoroughly and in and how can we make this research a little bit more coordinated, collaborative, patient-centered, and we had those heady principles, those health equity, diversity, and inclusion principles that we heard from the community as well as being important. So for me, those were the biggest teaching moments, for sure. Even as the early stages of the research blueprint were unfolding, the NBDF was acting on its intent to address the inequities in healthcare access and delivery within the bleeding disorders community with the recruitment of Dr. Carrie Norris to their leadership team as vice president of health equity, diversity, and inclusion. Dr. Norris how did NBDF's research and heady strategies begin to intersect through this phase of the blueprint development? With the SOS work group, they framed a lot of questions around implementation science. We had priority questions that came out of that group as well. And so with that specific group and prioritizing questions around public health outcomes, implementation science, and all of those things, those questions were very hierarchical. But before we can even answer that, we're looking at Lynn's what, which he said earlier, focusing on what the community thought was important, where they think that we should focus and what their opinions are about specific research we've done, we are currently doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so then the focus for myself and my group became the how and the who. So how do we do this effectively? And who should be at the table to do it right the first time around? It's important that we are inclusive of the community, that we do something that parallels or looks like community-based participatory research. So in that, you have lived experience experts, which are our patients, we call them leads, and they are alongside us leading the charge, asking the questions, helping to frame the research, being involved in all the steps of research methods, all the way through dissemination and whatever that looks like, if it's oral presentations, poster presentations, or manuscripts, they're involved from concept to end. And when we talk about patient voices, we're talking about the diverse voices. What does that look like? It looks like youth. It looks like Black people. It looks like Asian people. It looks like 
native people. It looks like people who live in rural areas and have geographical challenges. It looks like every single person that we serve, disabled communities, we need everyone at the table for it to be effective, for it to be right, and for it to be truly representative of the communities that we serve. And so that's what we've put together here. We continue the discussion right after this quick break. At Sanofi, we're here to help in ways big and small. You inspire us to push our research further, break new ground in treatment, and help to redefine hemophilia for this incredible community. Discover what Sanofi's dedication can mean for you at redefininghemophilia.com. Welcome back. In early 2023, a paper authored by doctors Valentino, Whitcop, Santaella, Dee McKelly, and Recht was published titled The National Hemophilia Foundation's State of the Science Research Summit, The Foundation of a National Research Blueprint for Inherited Bleeding Disorders. This paper highlighted the learnings that would guide NBDF's community-driven research platform. Now, by the end of the State of the Science, what did the NBDF learn about, number one, the community's research priorities, number two, the necessary integration of community guidance and foundational health equity, diversity, and inclusion principles. Number three, the infrastructure needed to support all of this. And number four, the workforce requirements for implementing a national research agenda for bleeding disorders. Now, I appreciate that is a chunky question. So whoever would like to start with whatever piece of it you'd like to start with. I think that the Research State of the Science Summit really helped clarify where research needed to move forward and what pace it needed to move forward. And that was very clear that time is of the essence and we need to move forward quickly because people are being impacted. There's morbidity and there's mortality from inaction. To me, one of the most impactful and I'm using that word very specifically, one of the most impactful elements of what came out of the state of the research science was the prioritization of questions to be answered based on impact and risk and feasibility. Dr. G. McKelly came up with this ranking system for us and Really, with the diversity of opinion within each one of those working groups, the working groups were able to come up with essentially a rank order for priorities based on the feasibility, risk, and impact. One critical outcome of the summit was the perceived need for a well-defined pathway that would enable affected individuals, or LEAs, to maintain an ongoing influential role as it relates to bleeding disorders research. What more can you tell us about that? The SOS resulted in a list of prioritized research questions that came from the community because each of those working groups were comprised of, again, key stakeholders, 
in the community representing a little bit. What the SOS did to me and was create that prioritized list. All the work of the SOS and everything that was presented is not only in our website, but it's also been summarized in publications that came to print in March of this year in Experts Review of Hematology. But the SOS presented us with the what do we need to focus in the next few years? How do we coordinate behind a, an aligned focus, a coordinated effort, so that we can accomplish, like Len said, in a, in a timely manner, we could start addressing all of those gaps that were recognized through the process. For me, it was that. It was the SOS provided the what. We needed to now go into the how are we going to accomplish this and how are we going to move forward. I think that each person here has built upon how this has happened. So definitely really impressed with the state of the science and how we were able to prioritize questions. And even the discussions that took place were really rich, very informative, really respectful, brilliant minds at the table saying, how can we solve these various issues? And then also, what are the principles that need to be taught across the board. So specifically for health equity, diversity, and inclusion, again, which also had these heavy areas of implementation, science, public health outcomes, all of these things, still there was this lingering thing of, are we speaking the same language? How do we define minoritized and marginalized populations? How do we define what health equity looks like for everyone? and make sure that we don't leave anyone out. So there were a lot of discussions around definitions and what inclusion means and what type of language we needed to use that researchers and patients alike in Lee's as well would be able to have in common and share in common, noting that there needed to be some foundational training on both sides. Thanks. Yes, the training needs to be on both sides. And that brings me to the next question about the Research Ambassador Program for training leads and researchers. Sammy, can you address that for us? So the Ambassador Program is going to be training that leads and researchers will go through equally, but it will take the lead and give them the background that they need to be the ambassador in the room to speak for everybody But it's also going to be what empowers them to know that their voice is equal and is needed in that room. We don't have all the details of that program rolled out yet or anything, but it is to take you and help you along the way in the process of joining the research groups. Yeah, we talked about the why, which came from the blue sky. We talked about the what, which came from the listening sessions, and the research state of the science. And we talked about the how, which is what we're doing now and what Maria alluded to. How do we now get this done using the lived experience experts, the health equity principles, and all of the other things that we've discussed? But what we haven't touched on is the when. And this is the part that I think is so critical. The when is how urgent the needs are. And I can't emphasize enough. I think about how people continue to have bleeding events. They continue to have mental health challenges. They continue to have life-threatening events. We need to make changes now. And this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we have been given to move 
this national research blueprint forward for the community. And the time is now, and we need to do this and fulfill the promise that we've made to this community. I think it's really important to emphasize the when is now. If not yesterday, it's today. Now, how did learnings from the summit inform the next phases of work on the National Research Blueprint? And specifically, how did that lead to the development of and assignments for the various NRB working groups? The really interesting aspect that came out of the research state of the summit, where we had these two working groups, one on health services and implementation sciences and and the heady principles, and the other on infrastructure and workforces and funding, it became very clear that we had to pull those working groups apart and specifically look at each one of those elements individually. So from that, we created a research and development working group. We created an infrastructure working group. We created a workforce working group. And those three working groups really formed the nidus for what we were trying to develop in our ability to actually conceive and run and then disseminate research within the inherited bleeding disorders field. At the beginning of my training to be a peds hematologist, the cure rate for children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia was about 50%, maybe 60%. Now it's over 95%. And we wanted to take that model and generalize it to the kind of questions that our lived experience experts in the inheritable bleeding disorders field wanted us to ask. We started from scratch with the infrastructure group and have been working for over the past year in realizing what exactly we wanted to design that was gonna allow the maximal input in trying to ensure that everybody who had any kind of impact from inheritable bleeding disorders could have their questions be considered and then work its way through this infrastructure that we're in the middle of building so we can eventually have all the skills and resources that are needed to be able to participate in multi-institutional studies, whether basic science in nature, translational in nature, or clinical trials. Now, we have talked a bit already about the role of the lived experience expert, or Lee. But it is worth highlighting that the very definition and scope of that role evolved quite a bit across this National Research Blueprint process. Tell us more about that. Sure. So we have the Community Engagement Working Group, and their task was to really define the community. So that was perhaps the first charges was really to define who are the key stakeholders in this process. And they've been able to, one of their key, and I love it when I hear from them, one of their key messages that they repeat over and over ways. It's two-way communication, right? It's making sure that nobody's left behind. Not the researcher talking to the research team, but the research team really working in unity and having a dialogue, having a discussion to be able to develop uh, good research projects and implement them. The other working group was the LEEs, the lived experience experts. And the LEEs were very interesting because they started 
these are the patients, right? Back then we called them patients or we called them subject matter experts because we wanted to let everybody know that we consider their lived experience, their expertise as an important component of the research process. And so we embedded them in, in the working groups as the SOS, but as we finished with the SOS, and again, we felt that excitement from them as being so that working group now is tasked with really looking at what does that participation look like? What are the challenges? What are the barriers? And how do we make sure that we address them so that when we say we want the LE to be at the center, to really be as part of the entire process, how does that look like and what do we need to make sure that it happens in a meaningful manner? Our next contributor has yet to be introduced, but I have a feeling you're going to recognize the voice. I think the... Lee and community engagement working groups are critical to the National Research Blueprint's work in general because its mission to include the patient, to center the patient in identifying research priorities. I have to say I was quite pleased to hear Maria cite something that we did bring up again and again, and we would speak with the other working groups, the need for two-way communication. We will always be in a battle of fits and starts when it comes to engagement and communication if there's not a fluid back and forth all the time that people know how to engage with. So I think all of the work of these groups matter. That's why these groups exist. But in particular, I, as a person with a bleeding disorder, as someone who thinks and spends a lot of time on engagement and what makes people want to engage, I felt very seen and accounted for, quite frankly, in the very existence of these working groups. I think it's paramount, and I'm glad we're taking time in this discussion to focus on them for a moment. So if there isn't good back and forth, it's not enough to do our surveys and do our landscape assessments now and then move forward without continuing to assess, without continuing to dialogue. So appreciating the need for those mechanisms to exist, to be supported, to innovate and iterate as the blueprint effort itself evolves, is absolutely necessary. Those working groups are gonna be busy for quite a long time. Dr. Norris, could you please speak to how the Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Working Group has spent the last two years working to create a set of recommendations, recommendations intended to help shape the structure and function of the National Research Blueprint. Can you tell us about that? Historically in the US, clinical research trials and research in general has not been inclusive, has not had the full voice of patients and going into communities and getting information and not coming back and sharing the information or sharing outcomes or what the next steps are of using minoritized and marginalized populations for our benefit overall, i.e. Henrietta Lacks, in addition to studies like Guatemala and Tuskegee and things of that nature. So to avoid those pitfalls, there has to be ground rules and principles around how we're doing it, who we're including, what voices are necessary, and then making sure that the foundational pieces are adequate to keep us from repeating anything of the past and also falling into any of those traps that could lead us back to further inequities. And so to our best ability, we get this group together of experts and of leads and of those who work in anti-racist research and those who work specifically with marginalized populations. 
and those who work in mental health and psychology and bring these minds together to say, what are the foundational principles? And so that's what we've taken as our charge. That's let's be inclusive. How are we disseminating this information? Are we using plain language to ensure that people understand from their perspective what this research is about, what it encompasses, and what the outcomes are? And then is it in their native language where they can understand it? How are we presenting it? So those are some of the guiding principles and things that we believe and know are important in doing this again from the beginning, doing it the right way. So Carrie, I, I want to just thank you for that incredible exposition and really what we're using as our guiding star and where we're trying to go. The other thing I'd like to say is we have to pay as much attention into who we're excluding from our research. So for example, in hemophilia, there has not been a single woman who has ever been on a trial that has led to the approval for a factor product. And that's gotta stop. There are women who are impacted by these diseases. We need to understand how these innovative medicines impact their lives and what the safety profile and the effectiveness profile of these medications. And then going even a step further, we have to bring them in from the very beginning, from the animal work, the translational work, and into the clinical trials. Dr. Valentino, an entire working group was devoted to workforce development. How do you view the workforce issues facing the bleeding disorders community today and into the future? I think in terms of workforce and who is going to conduct the research. I think it's even a broader question about who's going to take care of the people once the research is conducted. I think that we're at a critical juncture where many of the hemophilia treatment centers, which we consider to be the gold standard of care, are being led by younger and younger, less experienced clinicians because we have an aging classical hematology community. So the younger people are moving into the space. And my fear is that we won't have people who are steeped in experience, obviously, because of their age and their tenure within the community, but more importantly, that they are drawn into other areas like oncology, like stem cell transplantation, where the potential for more lucrative financial careers is there and that we don't have sufficient workforce. I'm really concerned about not just the research workforce, but the clinical workforce of who will take care of these people into the future. In terms of how we do that, it's going to require collaboration and working together with the American Society of Hematology which clearly has a strong focus on workforce development and the next generation and next generations of clinical hematologists, working with the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, but more importantly, working with the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network, the Hemophilia Thrombosis Research Society, and others within our community, like the American Society of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology, to ensure that we're all working together 
in a unified, cohesive, and coordinated fashion. I see. And why was it important to have a policy working group? And why is policy important when it comes to research? The policy realm is a very different area that requires a different skill set, different type of expertise. And I think that there are interactions that can support, facilitate, and really help research and innovation to move forward. Whether that's interactions with our federal partners at the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or more importantly, Health Services Research Administration, which is focused heavily on implementation and how advances that come from research and innovation help patients and help the community. Because if it doesn't reach the patient, it's not going to be useful. Great. Dr. Recht, could you please explain the work performed by the Research and Development Working Group? The work of the Research and Development Working Group, part of the NRB, really was a direct evolution from the various condition-specific working groups that were part of the SOS. And I think really where Dr. Johnson, Jill Johnson, who's leading this working group, has taken us, has been in her ability to not only synthesize the priorities that came out, but also that communication between the research working group and all the other working groups to take the overall ideas that came out of the SOS and refine them to fit with the priorities that are coming from our current working groups. We move into the last segment of our discussion right after one last break. Life with hemophilia shouldn't be defined by limits, and the right education along the way can be helpful. Discover what Sanofi's dedication can mean for you at redefininghemophilia.com. All the working groups have clearly worked hard to contribute to the NRB. So what does an integrated vision and mission for the NRB look like? How does it reflect the work of the working groups? And how do we envision it working to support research for inherited bleeding disorders? Maria, to bring that to a fine point, based on the working group recommendations, how is the NBDF currently defining the vision and mission of the National Research Blueprint as it has evolved through the work of the bleeding disorders community? The vision for the National Research Blueprint is thriving in the face of inheritable bleeding disorders begins with community-inspired research. And I think, as with any vision statement, it's short, but it takes a lot of thought and a lot of input from all the members. It's not an MBDF process. It's not the researcher's process. It's a community process. And really, the idea is that we want to address the gaps that have been identified. We want to make their quality of life, and we can only do that really by relevant research that arises from community-inspired research. Then came the mission of the National Research Blueprint. All the seven working groups that we've described is really advancing accessible standards of care to really to improve the quality of life of all infected with inheritable bleeding disorders. And the way we do that is really through collaborative and meaningful scientific inquiry, through an effective and efficient coordinated research infrastructure by ensuring that we have a diverse and capacitated, oh boy, 
<laughs> through an efficient and coordinated research infrastructure. So to say that again, what we're trying to accomplish is to ensure that the work of these seven working groups that have worked in being thoughtful and being thoughtful of their charge, to how do we integrate it in one plan that actually ensures that each one of these very important perspectives that we talked about is not only reflected in the mission, but it's reflected in the NRB as a whole. We've been thinking about this a lot, and we have input from all of our community members where anybody from anywhere who has an idea throws that idea into a hopper. And then we have the entire infrastructure designed where those ideas built around the executive committee, all the different advisory groups and standing committees get a look at what is being proposed and we can figure out are we going to be able to answer the questions with the resources we have? What's the risk of either doing this research or not doing the research? And how impactful the answers that we're going to get from the questions that are being posed? As we've all seen recently, sometimes majority rule doesn't necessarily work. And because of that, we have begun to examine the idea of using a more dynamic governance system. And this is a way, a system in which everybody's voice is heard, where consensus doesn't necessarily have to be reached by a majority vote, but it is a way to just ensure that the process move continually moves forward and we're not held up by one or two or a group of people. So this is the whole thing that we're trying to design is to make the system as efficient and productive as possible. And I think that the whole idea of the National Research Blueprint is to bring everybody together under one tent. I envision this as being part of the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, but not owned by the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation. Whatever we end up calling the National Research Blueprint, it is gonna be guided by all stakeholders, particularly our lived experience experts. The National Bleeding Disorders Foundation is gonna be able to assist in providing the business infrastructure, the fundraising infrastructure, the grants, the contracting, but they're not going to be the organization that is going to say, we're the NBDF and therefore you're doing Project A, Project B, and Project C. I would just add that there's a lot of great organizations in our community, in the bleeding disorders community, that are doing much of what is needed already, right? So there's HDRS who's focused on the researchers and supporting them and giving them the tools that they need, the resources that they need to become better at what they do. We have organizations like Partners in Education, which educates our providers and our HTCs. We need to increase their understanding of the research, of heady principles, of how to incorporate LEEs into their research. We can definitely lean into partners and the like. NHF has a track record of not only educating providers, but also educating our patients, our LEEs, leaning into our departments to really help us educate the force that the education that's going to need it. Like Mike said, we don't see unnecessarily having to recreate the wheel. I really see that this is an opportunity to convene 
multiple stakeholders and bring people together. Never before have we had an opportunity to do that. And I, as Mike said, NBDF doesn't own this. This is not something that the organization owns, but really, as Maria stated, this is being convened. We are facilitating bringing like-minded people together to do something truly unique and special. What do you see as the biggest remaining challenges to realizing the full potential of the NRB? Today's conversation has been so exciting and so energizing. I do think we can't forget that we have some challenges in front of us to the rollout of the NRB. And those challenges are people, time, and money. So we've already touched on the workforce, right? We need a specific workforce to make this NRB work. We need time. Those of us in academic practice, and certainly those in private practice, we are now being judged not on how many grants we get, how many papers we write, it's how we are being productive clinically. So that means we are being judged not on how we advance the field, but how much money we make for our institution. So time is important. And then funding is a really big issue. All that said, even with all these challenges, this process is undeniable. There is nothing that we could be doing that is more important in advancing the care of those we serve. And I think it is incumbent on us to get that story out. And once we do, our funders are in no way going to be able to say no to our requests. Indeed, we all hope the funding agencies support this work. Dr. Recht, could you please explain to our listeners the process of public comment and what you hope to gain from that? As the working groups have been finalizing their recommendations for the NRB, we have been synthesizing what they're saying and trying to put together a skeleton of what the NRB might look like and even more important, what it's going to mean to people. So our idea is that we're going to put together a very high level document that's going to talk about our mission, talk about our vision, talk about our guiding principles, show what our infrastructure might look like, and then send it out to the community and let the community read it, digest it, and give us comments. Are we on the right track? Have we considered everything that we need to be considered? Are we really embedded in the principles of equity and diversity and inclusion? So it's ditto to what Mike said, but it's also, I'm hoping to get not only the critical feedback for places where we may have missed something or areas where there are suggestions for from the community, but I'm also looking for kudos for where we got it right. Because a lot of times when we provide feedback, we say, oh, this is where you missed. We also want to know where we got it right. I think that's extremely important and that people, I'm hoping for diverse representation in those who give us feedback because you have this open opportunity. So we need to make sure that we cast as wide of a net as we can to get all the feedback that we need because we don't want one segment of our community 
to just provide feedback. We want to hear from everyone else. So I'm hoping for diversity in response. I alluded to this earlier, but it's what does the community think when they hear the word research? And in, in, in this specific scenario, I'm thinking about our LEEs. Are we talking the same language? Are we able to communicate what we're trying to accomplish? Do you see yourself reflected in what we're trying to build? Do you see your role? Are you inspired by this? And do you want to really help us move research forward? So I would love to hear specifically from our LEEs, ensuring that they're seen, that they feel heard, and that we're explaining things and that we are doing it at a level that they can understand and they feel included. So I would love to see a lot of LEEs responding to the open comment period and letting us know how we've done. And we will have ways of ensuring that they continue to get engaged and continue to communicate because we will need everyone to make sure that this is successful. So we will need an army of LEEs. So I hope they all feel inspired in in contributing. I specifically hope to get Lees excited, for one. I want them to realize that their voice is going to make a difference and get them into signing on to be Lees. Also, I want some of the kinks to be worked out during the open comments so that when we roll the first draft of the NRB out, some of the things will have been thought of and processed and put through to be more of a final draft than a beginning draft. The blueprint will change as we keep going forward. It will have to for purposes of as research changes through technology and things like that, things are going to change and it won't be the final ever hopefully, because it's just going to keep re-evolving. But through the public comment, getting the community to understand what we've come up with and how important it is and to get them to understand that their voice counts. Fantastic. So then what are the biggest remaining challenges to realizing the NRB's full potential? When we are successful in this effort, then everyone is seen. We have no invisible members of the community. Everyone is respected for what they bring to the table. So that's my big golden hope for this thing. And I think that if we take anything, it's from the quote, a quote that I heard that said that we are greater than and greater for the sum of us. So if everyone is included, that we hope to have at the table and feel a sense of respect and responsibility. So we're going to stay with the R&Rs. Respect and responsibility and let that drive us and keep us, then this is just going to blow the roof off of so many things and will be successful. I think that if the NRB is truly successful, the output of the NRB will produce research that is really meaningful to patients, will produce a greater sense of community because now we've moved the patients from just being subjects in clinical trials to being part of that research process, part of the designing clinical trials, part of the enrollment efforts, part of the implementations, dissemination and implementation of those findings. So I think by including the LEE in the research and making it really community-based participatory research because they'll be more relevant, it will help them really not only improve their quality of life, but also really give them the information that they need to make educated decisions, to really truly participate and share decision-making because we will be creating research 
that is relevant to them, that it's important to their everyday life. That's how Len started at the beginning of the segment, making sure that the research that we're conducting, we're being thoughtful in thinking of them and really doing it in a patient-centric manner, incorporating patients in all stages or LEEs in all stages of the research process. We need to thank the millions of people that were involved selflessly in minutes and hours and years of their life. So I think it's important to actually acknowledge that and say thank you. Thank you for devoting your time, your effort, your talents, your expertise to the NRB. And we hope that at the end of the process, you feel pride in that you contributed to something greater than all of us together. Thank you to you as well. And as we come to a close, Dr. Valentino, I'd like to give you the last word. How do you anticipate the National Research Blueprint might transform the research landscape for inherited bleeding disorders and beyond? This is a great question. I think this is a tremendous model that can be implemented and adapted to other disease states, not only in hematology, but across other disease states as well, because it's focused in what matters most to the people who matter most for the research, the people who live with these diseases. So I think, number one, that's fairly unique. I don't know of any other research enterprise that's really been designed and developed to take this type of an approach that's so heavily focused in the lived experience experts and in principles of health equity. That's really what we're striving for is to allow people to live their best life and to live a life despite having a diagnosis of X similar to their unaffected peers. I think it has evolved because of, again, input from experts like Carrie, like Maria, like Mike, but also from experts like Patrick, who spoke earlier about this being a living, breathing process and not being something that's static. We have a number of outstanding publications that Maria alluded to in the supplement and expert reviews in hematology. Those are static. But I see the research enterprise that we're building as something that's living, breathing, and continues to incorporate on an ongoing basis the voice of the entire community. Not just the lived experience experts, but the lived experience providers of all types, our policymakers, our regulators, our federal partners of all types, and importantly, our industry partners, because the industry partners are key to advancing science in a way that is most impactful to the people that they say that they're serving, which are patients. Because I think we're going to become a model that other disease communities will want to emulate. Thank you, doctors Valentino, Recht, Santa Ella, and Norris. And thank you to Lee, Sammy Valadez, for contributing to today's discussion. Today, we covered the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation's National Research Blueprint. We learned how activities such as listening sessions and surveys, Blue Sky workshops, and the NBDF's State of the Science Summit led to prioritized working groups and responsibilities to help create the appropriate foundation for this community-driven research initiative. 
To learn more about the NBDF's National Research Blueprint and how you can get involved, visit hemophilia.org research. Thank you to the Global Hemophilia Report's Senior Advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and thank you to Sanofi, our featured advertiser, for making this show possible. Thanks as well to everyone at Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited who support the Global Hemophilia Report. And please subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report. Share this episode or its breakout content across social media with friends or colleagues who you think would benefit from the content. For links to any of our previous episodes, visit globalhemophiliareport.com and stay tuned for our next monthly podcast. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time...